Welcome to Bevington Banter, the show where we can sound like we're arguing even when we all agree. I'm Cassidy, and together with my brother Cade and dad Randy, each week we discuss a selection of news stories, topics surrounding the culture, and matters of freedom and faith. Thanks for listening. Follow and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Share it, and if you like what you hear, rate it five stars on Apple and Spotify. If you don't know, I am actually training to be a coach, uh, or they call it a client advocate, we call it, but basically a crisis pregnancy coach at our at my local crisis pregnancy center in Reno. And so it's a, a subject, the subject of life and the sanctity of life. Protecting life is um, of great importance to me. It's a passion for me, something I've always felt strongly about. And so um, I thought for the walk, I'll just jump on that and talk about what that means, the sanctity of life, what the Bible says about it. And really, I, I added in the word, I realized after I gave dad the sermon title, really the sanctity of human life. Because part of this is going to be the distinction of what makes a human life different. Um, before I get into it, I also want to preface it, though, by um, first addressing um, one thing. This isn't a message meant to, because the statistics say that multiple people in this room have been affected by abortion in one way or another, women, men, whatever it is. Um, and so I want to first preface it by saying this isn't supposed to be a message of condemnation or um, you know, demonizing anyone who's been affected by this. Um, I would first say to anyone, if that's you in this room, um, that I'm sorry for the situation you were put in, the fear that I can't imagine, the fear you felt in that situation, if there was pressure, if you felt outside pressure um, to make that decision, the sorrow or anger at finding out um, or at the way that people responded, not feeling supported or empowered. Um, I'm sorry if the facts weren't all presented to you, what was happening, the potential side effects or the trauma that comes afterward. Um, it's one thing that is not that you look in the media or um, in the public that is not presented to women. They're just told like it's this, yeah, you'll be totally fine. But um, the truth is that afterward, um, or I'm sorry, but also I'm sorry if you felt pressured versus supported, or if you looked, felt like you were being looked down on because you were in that situation versus that you were being empowered to be able to choose life and to make your own decision, um, or if you felt judged or rejected by family or by the church instead of loved and accepted um, and supported. Uh, but also the, the the big one is the side effects, the, the what comes afterward. Women who go through abortion, or even men who experience are part of a, a relationship in which there is an abortion. Um, and it's, there's a lot coming out now about post-abortion syndrome um, and depression and, and post-abortion stress syndrome or, or depression. And a lot of times it's typically not seen until three to five years following the abortion. And so it can, it doesn't, it's not necessarily an immediate thing and it can be triggered. Um, there can be flashbacks triggered by uh, environment, or so like a doctor's office setting maybe triggers things or sights, smells, or sounds, um, experiences associated with it. It comes with recurring anxiety, unresolved guilt, and grief because a lot of times women feel like they aren't allowed to grieve that loss um, because either they chose to give it up and they didn't realize or because it, they're being told it wasn't a life, right? And so they don't feel like they're allowed in our society to really grieve that loss. Um, or you never had that baby, so why would you grieve that thing? Um, and it also 
can come up around anniversaries of the abortion or around the due date that can trigger um, physical illness, anxiety, and depression. And it could be that you've been through this, maybe you've experienced this and you don't even realize like, that there is a link here. Um, relationship difficulties um, often arise with women post-abortion um, in romantic, either romantic relationships or in parent-child relationships. Um, women can have a hard time attaching to their, like if they end up having a child later, and then there, but there can be guilt and grief around it, or that child reminds them of a child they lost. Um, all of these things. So I, before I get into it, I, I wanted to say that and say that it's okay, and it's even necessary to grieve. And if you haven't, um, if you were led to believe that you couldn't, consider this to be your permission uh, to talk about what you went through, your experiences in a safe environment, to let yourself feel and grieve and cry, um, to go through programs. There are lots of programs, um, support groups, Bible studies with this, and that there's, um, to assure you that there's always opportunities for redemption. I actually thought of the song that when Cade was singing that, what the enemy meant for evil, you use for good. And that doesn't mean that, that the bad, the, the thing didn't happen or the difficult thing didn't happen, but that's what, there's always redemption opportunity. So whether that be your healing or using your story to help other women find healing, um, to find and lead them to Jesus, or to use your story and experience to empower other women to choose life who may not have um, and to not go through what you've gone through, that is what it means that there can be redemption and God can use that for good. Um, so wanted to put that out there first. Um, but also say, as I talk about life today, I'm not going into details of, this isn't a biology lesson, we're not going into details of fetal, fetal development or viability or the science behind um, you know, all of life and what happens. That can be powerful arguments, but, but I think that it's, and it can also be debated once you start talking science, people will, and I don't want to get in, because I think there's a dip, deeper issue anyway, that if they don't see life, it's a, if there's an issue in our culture of just simply not valuing life as we once did at any point of development, whether that be pre or um, you look at euthanasia laws now, right? Like we just don't value life the same way as we did before. And there's a deeper issue in the hearts and the minds first before we even start talking about the science behind it or what's actually happening as a body develops in the womb. And so, um, so I'm simply going to address the question from a biblical standpoint. What's the Bible say about life, human life, and why does protecting life matter? And the simple answer is because it matters to God. So first off, sanctity, when we say the sanctity of life, what does that even mean? Sanctity really just means holy or sacred, like holy is dedicated to God or dedicated to a certain purpose. It's set apart. It's different. So human life, it's, there's a sanctity to it. It's different. It's set apart for something special. So we're just going to go through the Bible and the people of the Bible and basically what does it say about life. And first we have Moses, and this is kind of the main um, scripture for this, and it's Genesis 2-7 that God says, or Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, the historical books. So this is what Moses had to say about life. And in Genesis 2-7, he said, Then the Lord God formed the man of uh, the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living 
creature. And actually, the King James Version says a living soul. And, um, and so it's this in-breathing of God. And also in the Bible, we see that the word breath is very closely tied to spirit. So this idea that you were as good as dirt until you had a soul, a spirit breathed into you. So without a soul, without a spirit, we're, then I guess you could say, what's the value? But there's no life there. Once there was soul and spirit put into you, you are now, there's a value. You are a human, a living being, a human soul. Um, a little bit. And so I think this, this issue of like what makes a human life sacred or there's a sanctity and it needs to be protected is, uh, is tied to this idea of a soul and a spirit. So I want a real quick little history, theology history lesson here, is there's a few different ideas around the soul, uh, about how, like, when does a soul join a body, and how is a soul, whatever. And so um, three main views. One we'll probably throw out right away. This is the idea of, like, a pre-existence of the soul, that God created, like, some God created a certain number of souls, and they join a human body upon conception. But there's, like, a set number, it's not a popular belief, and it's kind of like a reincarnation belief, this idea that they like recycle, there's so many souls. So not a very popular belief. There's one, big words, but not hard to, to idea, but it's anthropological creationism. I know, big words. But basically, it's a long tradition in the church, kind of a Roman Catholic <laughs> reform tradition. The idea that a soul comes into ex each individual soul comes into existence as a direct result of a created act by God. So each individual soul is created distinctly by God. And it's created in close connection with conception. But this belief, they don't specify the time at which the body and the soul would join. So I guess you could still, it still leaves open some debate. Um, however, I'm always in the, like, if we don't know for sure, let's err on the side of, like, the soul's there right away. Um, and they cite a few different verses as to why they believe this. Um, one, one of those being Zechariah 12.1, verses that say things like, the Lord formed the spirit of man within him. So they use that as the idea that the Lord forms every spirit of every man. And then the last idea is called traducianism, which is widely held among evangel the evangelical church. And it, it basically says that the unit person, so as a person, I'm a, like a body and a soul, both pieces, our body and a spirit, right? And that's my unit person. And it says that the unit person produces after its own kind. So when like the union of two people comes together, that the two bodies generate a body and the two souls generate a soul. Does that kind of make sense? So that's another idea. And so that would mean that then the soul is created at the same, like with conception at the same time. So that soul is there from the beginning. And that, that idea kind of more follows with the idea of like the procession of original sin that those souls are creating. It, it kind of, to me, follows with that same belief, the way that you pass it down. So it's more of a pass down thing. Um, they use Hebrews 7.10 as their scriptural um, backing here for this belief, um, which says that he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. This idea that Mo Abraham's descendants were like within him, so body and soul, that's the idea there. So a couple of ideas, but really basically saying that each soul then is a unique creative thing, and it's, either way you look at it, 
it's part of the body like somewhere very early on in the process, right? So it's this unique thing. And that soul is really what sets us apart as God breathed it into man. Um, and when it comes down to it, in Ezekiel, God said that all souls are mine. And so those things belong to him. We don't have, they're not ours to mess with or to destroy or whatever create, right? They're God's, his to deal with. So first Abraham says, God gave you a soul, gave you spirit. All that to say, God gives you a soul, breathes it into you. And without that, we're as good as dirt, really, because we're created from dirt. So he also says in Genesis 1 that God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So here, I think this really sets it apart, sets man it like further sets man apart from the rest of creation. Because you have this, man is the only thing in which he says, let us make them in our image. There's an implanting of the image of God, right? And there's this assignment of privilege. You're going to have dominion over the earth. Like, and there's an elevated status of man. That you are to subdue the rest of creation. And um, you have a privilege over it. And also, it gives us our purpose, too. It gives us a purpose to have dominion over the earth and to multiply. And so you see that all life is created by God, but humans have a special significance here because of that inbreathing of God and that spirit, that soul, that implanting of his image. So later, Moses also... So that's, that's what he says about our creation and why we're different and sacred, set apart. Um, but he also says, talks about the reckoning for the taking of life, which shows how much God cares about life. And specifically, if you, the, why they belong to him, there's a punishment or something to come if you take that life away. In Genesis 9, 5 and 6, or 5 through 7, Moses wrote, And um, for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image, and you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. So he sets up from the beginning that there is going to be a reckoning for any, the taking of blood. You also see in Exodus, when you have the... Um, the Ten Commandments, right? You shall not murder. We are not to be taking life. When you look at the very first murder in the Bible, Genesis 4, right? God said when he found out, or God knew what happened, right? But when he goes to Cain and says, you know, where's your brother? And he's saying, I don't know where my brother is. Um, God says, when he knows what he has done, and he tells him, now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer of the earth. So there's a punishment for he's cursed 
because of this taking of life, because there is a significance of what he has, to what he has done. Um, this one, I like, this is when he's setting, when Moses is, um, when they're giving the law, when God gives the law, there are laws around the taking of life and the repercussions of that. And so in Exodus 21, um, this is pretty insightful that he writes, when men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there's no harm, then the one who hit her so surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him. So this is if he hits her and the, the child for, like causes the child to come out, but the child is fine, then there's no, you know, you're fined for hitting them, but you didn't end a life or anything. But if there is harm to the child, then, or there's harm to the woman or the child, then you shall pay for life. And I think what's interesting here is that there's no specification on the stage of development of this child. Basically, if you harm a pregnant woman and the child inside of her is harmed, then you pay for life. It's as good as life. And doesn't matter, doesn't specify the stage of development there whatsoever. Um, so that's what Moses had to say about life, what we can see from him. Moving on to David, right? So this is a man after God's own heart. And David, one of the most well, uh, you know, well-known, well-used, probably passages around life, um, is Psalm 139. So reading a chunk of that from verses 13 to 18, um, David wrote that, You formed my inward parts, you knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret. Intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. What stands out to me most in that is that when he says, the, again, unformed substance. So before he was even formed, put together, God saw him. Um, so again, this would be like pre-development. So you want to say there's no difference on stage of development because God saw him before he was even formed. Um, I think that a few things in here speak to one, God saying that I praise you speaks to the, the dignity of human life, that it was, it's something that, you know, if the creator is worthy of praise, then his creation is worthy of praise. There's a, a dignity to it and a value to it. If you think about a work of art by a renowned artist, right? It's a, we see it as it's a valuable thing. The work of art itself is valued because of the skill that created it and the intention and the time and effort that went into creating it. And if God is incredible and worthy of praise, then his works are worthy of praise and there's a value to them. And God's a better artist than any art I've ever seen. So it's even more valuable, his works. So this is what David has to say. David really speaks to the dignity and the value of human life here. Um, simply because, not based on what that life has done, simply because it was created by an incredible artist. Solomon, the wisest man to ever live, this is a little different, but he actually even spoke to not just the sanctity of life, 
but the sanctity of the relationship that creates life, that perpetuates life, if you think about it like that, right? So Song of Solomon, I'm not going to go into detail of the Song of Solomon, but if you read it, it's, it's really all about, right, the, the sanctity, the sacredness, the specialness of the intention of the relationship that is meant to create life, by which life is created. And the talks about seals and commitment, right? The commitment of the way that that relationship is supposed to be, the companionship of that relationship, and um, the self-control that they're supposed to be in, our, in sexuality. Um, he writes often, right, don't stir up the, the female writer in Song of Solomon from her perspective is saying, don't stir up or awaken love until it pleases. So the self-control around what that relationship is supposed to look like and the design that God intended for it. And I think what we see in that is that God does, had this amazing design for man and woman to come together in this covenantal relationship, this thing that was supposed to be special and sacred. And when you have that seal, that commitment idea, and that companioning idea, it makes, it, it makes giving yourself to that other person right, easier, safer, and more, more joyful. But wrong ideas, like part of why we don't even value like, the life as much and what it produces, what that relationship now produces, is because wrong ideas around that sexual relationship have led to women or people in those relationships feeling used and abused and angry um, because there, haven't, there wasn't that commitment, there wasn't that companionship, and there wasn't self-control. And so it leads to, and feeling used, abused, and angry, right, kind of leads to that pushback of, it's my body, right? If you feel abused, used and abused, you're gonna get protected of, of your body. And that kind of leads to that angry, my body, my choice, my power, right? It's me, um, without the thought of others. When that relationship, as it's laid out in scripture, is supposed to create this safe thing in which we see that what it produces is also, like this sacred relationship produces something that is special and sacred and to be valued. Um, and then, the last person in the Bible we're going to look about talking about life is Paul, and so possibly the greatest evangelist ever. And I think I like this because it's, it's a deeper issue than just life in the womb. He's kind of speaking to life more in general, and he's speaking to non-believers, which is something that we need to look at a lot because when we're communicating with people now and we're trying to get this message and why it's important across, we... A lot of them aren't believers, and so taking lessons from Paul is helpful in that. So you, one of his, seen as his like, greatest sermon, you could say, um, I, I believe a lot of people look at it that way, or kind of the main, where we, we see like main sermon from Paul. And he's standing in the Areopagus, which is like a pagan, uh, the Greek pagan place of worship. Um, and so... He, in Acts 17, he's speaking to these people who, like, of pagan religions, and they serve other different gods, whatever. And so he, he says, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What, therefore, you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, 
nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself, he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. And even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. So he uses their own words, their own terminology to try to communicate them to them. I think two points that stick out that he wants to make clear to them is that God created each one of us and that he cares for each one of us, right? He tells them the message he wants them to understand is that God gave mankind, all mankind, life and breath, and in him we live and move and have our being. He created all of us. And the second thing is that he cares for us because he says that he did this, that they should seek God and find their way toward him, and he tells them that God is not far from them. Um, so if this is what scripture says about life and our being and all people, what are we to do with this? And why is our culture... So, so how are we to use this now in communicating with our culture and addressing that problem more of, we need, of changing the hearts and minds around this idea of life? Because even you could change all the policy you, know, you want, but if people are, their hearts and minds aren't changed, all you're going to get is there's, it's an endless anger and fighting and division over it. But if we go down to the root of the problem, if we're able to really change hearts and minds, then this won't be an issue anymore. We wouldn't have to worry about legislating all of these things to, to protect life because people would understand that. So why have we drifted so far from it over time? And why has it become such a difficult thing to discuss that people get so angry around? One, we've, we've lost the the foundations around the topic, like the language, like sanctity, when we use the word sanctity, it, it presupposes that we are, have a theistic, right? We believe in a God, that there's some sort of worldview, but our culture really doesn't really believe that way anymore. Um, and then the issue of life, or we can't even talk about, agree on what life means when it begins, right? What constitutes a life? Uh, it, there's, People can have a theological discussion around life because theological means it's a focus on God, but our culture is breaking away from anything authoritative. There's no source of authority that, right, in a theistic worldview or when we want to have a theological conversation of life, God said it, therefore it is because he's the authority. But in our society, it's like, well, nobody can tell me what to do. There's no source of truth, authoritative truth. Sometimes we like to use historical arguments or... Um, and how it has been, but our culture also treats history like it's irrelevant now. Um, we don't no longer take lessons from history, and they, they like to rewrite it, history, all the time, right? So we can't even use our historical arguments. Um, and ultimately, it's that we've lost uh, the anchor point in our culture and around this discussion of the Bible, the Bible as an anchor point, right? Think, if you think of... Uh, any fishermen out there, if you go and you find, you're looking for the best place to fish, right? And if you find the area that has all the fish, that's where you're going to drop anchor so that you can catch all the fish. Um, and without it, we, you drift away. How easily we drift away. And so as our, we don't have the Bible to anchor us and keep us rooted around that, um, this conversation, we can't even, 
it's hard to even have the discussion. Um, so ultimately, if we want to change the hearts and minds, we have to be able to somehow draw people back to that anchor point of, of truth. And so we want to have a, 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 be able to, in order to change hearts and minds, we want a declaration of the truth, the Bible, and that is calling people back to, calling people back to that anchor point. And the Bible, um, as an anchor point, it offers us, like, why is it important? It offers us, first off, it's a revelation of God's person and purpose. It says that God is that authoritative source. He's Lord over all. He's in control of all. Colossians said that in him all things were created um, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So, you know, any authority on earth, everything is subject to him. He is Lord over all. And further, when it says that, it says he's worthy to be praised. I thought of when we, that when we were singing that build, that build My Life song, right? Worthy of every praise we could ever bring. That that God, that Lord, in Psalm, there's so many, you know, David praises God, all, <laughs> praise for God all over the Bible. But in Psalm 145, you know, he says, I will extol you, bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, greatly to be, be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. The Bible shows us that God is worthy to be praised, which in turn means that his, his works and his creation are worthy to be praised. And that's every human life, regardless of what it's done, simply by the fact that it is his creation, created by a creator worthy of praise, it therefore is also worthy of praise. The Bible also reveals to us its own power as, uh, as an instrument for accomplishing God's purpose. So as we said in the beginning, right, God's breath appears in two, for two things, two purposes. One, it breathes life into man. And the other thing, right, is that God's breath was used for the word of God. Second Timothy 3 says that all scripture was breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for proof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the, the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So it, it possesses you know, when that breath of God goes into it, it possesses this supernatural power. And that is helpful because it tells us that it's not our job to convince people of the truth because the, the word itself is powerful. So we simply have to offer them the truth the, of the scripture and what God's word says to tell them of the wonder of their own creation as a child of God and the reality of scripture and the scripture will do the work. It has power to pull them back to the truth. Um, the Bible also, as an anchor point, reveals our person and purpose. Um, that God's breath, again, as we went through in the beginning, God's breath was used for the creation of man. It teaches people of their own dignity and their own value, regardless of what they've done, what they've experienced, and what you know, life they were born into, what they've done since then, where they are now. Uh, it, it teaches them of their own dignity and value. I think one major thing around the topic of life and abortion that changed for me, and really I always was passionate about it and wanted to do something to end abortion and thought about, you know, serving with crisis pregnancy centers or pregnancy life centers. And, um, but when the, the Dobbs decision came down, the overturned Roe v. Wade, and seeing the reaction of it, something really changed within me. Um, whereas before, I might have looked at people who 
were, were out there you know, protesting for abortion or pushing for looser legislation around it, abortion on demand anytime. And I might have looked at them and, you know, downwardly like, like they were evil or demonized them or been angry with them, the people that were saying this or wanting this or were angry about the idea of losing their rights, right? And I would have seen them as my enemies. Um, but when this decision came down, something changed where I, at the time, was serving as an advisor for uh, sorority, that, the sorority that I was in in college, but at UNR, at uh, University of Nevada, Reno. And so I was connected with you know, these young women and so I followed them on Instagram. And then even some like women my a little bit older, my age. And they were so passionate. You know, I'm clicking through Instagram stories and all I see are these posts of like women's rights, women's rights, how could they be taking our rights, all this stuff this is gonna kill people. And what hit me about it was that their the, the way that their fear and their anguish and um, was real, right? They had truly been convinced that they needed this for their own good. They needed to be able to go and get an abortion if they, anytime they wanted for their own good and that it was their right and that they, they had to have this opportunity or else it was gonna ruin their lives and, and kill them. And I, was, I felt so bad for them. I was so saddened and grieved for them that they, that they were feeling this true, like they were truly feeling this anguish. And I just wanted to be able to go and tell them that that's not true. They had been so lied to and deceived, and that they didn't have to be feeling the, these um, this anger and all this thing and all of this. And and what clicked was that another thing is if they didn't understand the value of a life in the womb simply because it was human, then they also didn't understand the source of their own value and their own worth, their own life. Um, simply because they were created in the image of God. And that really sparked, and, and I needed to have that experience in order to go into the Crisis Pregnancy Center in the role that I'm going to be in, to be able to speak, meet with the women who are in these situations, rather than you know yelling, <laughs> whereas before you might just be like, you can't do this, like you know pushing life on them uh, and telling them they had to choose life you have to come, like, we don't even, we don't, yeah, we're a Christian group, but when we meet with them, we, we don't hide the idea that, you know, of abortion. It's out there as an option. We simply tell them the truth, and we believe that when we do so, and when we empower them, that we just hope and pray that they will choose life. We don't tell them that abortion is not an option, um, because in Nevada, it, still is up to whenever they um, basically any time on demand up to birth and so we have to talk about it but we also tell them the truth of the what happens and the danger is we tell them about their child and about their worth about the worth of their baby um, and empower them to make their own decision and not what they're feeling from those around them and that was something that really um, really clicked in me and I think in that so that using the Bible as a tool of a, a revelation of our own person, each one of us, our value and our dignity. Um, and understanding that they, they didn't see that, they didn't know that, and they had to be told where their value came from in order to see the value of their, the life of their baby. Um, and so that creation mandate also gives us, not only tells us of our value, but it also gives us purpose. 
right, that we have dominion over the earth. And also the Bible tells us of our responsibility. Um, Ephesians 2.10, for example, saying, we're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we also have a responsibility to walk in the things that God prepared for us. Um, there's other verses you can use there too. And when you don't have the Bible as an anchor point, you have what we see in the world instead. If it's not the Bible, typically what it goes to is the anchor point is my, I am the God. Not, there's not a God that's an anchor point. It's the empowered self as the anchor point. Paul actually wrote in Romans that, uh, in Romans 1, 18 through, 22, through like 25, but only some of the verses I think are going to be up there. But basically, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of man, who by their unrighteousness, they suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, can, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. They became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So basically, they rejected God. There's evidence of him. They have rejected him. So he says, therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. So when they, we, even from the beginning, when people rejected God, the truth of God, they exchanged and they served the creature or the creation rather than the creator. They became their own gods, serving themselves. And that is also, again, you see, my body, my will, my power. Proverbs 14, 12 says that there is a way that seems right to a man. So man's will, man's power, right? There's a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way of death. And what it means there is eternal death, right? Your, the way of man is going to lead you to eternal spiritual death. But I think it's also interesting that you see that they are serving man and they have no problem with physical death as well and, and, and killing, or you could say. So our response should be speaking that truth in love, um, what the Bible says, and depending on the Bible, the Word of God, to uh, its own power to draw people, the Holy Spirit, to, to convict and draw them um, towards him. But then also, the issue in the church somewhat has been that people say, well, the church is all about, uh, you know, you want to, telling us what to do and what we can't do, but they're not actually helping. So you, um, it's not enough to just speak the truth and be advocating for life and the value of life, but we also have to do something, uh, provision of help. And the, um, so I think the speaking the truth is more like the zoomed out view, the bigger picture. We want to change the hearts and minds. But then a woman in her individual situation, when she is in need, uh, when she is afraid, like feeling like she has nowhere to turn, she's like, I don't care about your big picture, right? 
that person, the zoomed in view, has to look at individual instincts or individual instances. When we know people, we have to be involved in helping that person. It's one thing, this was a quote from, so the training that I'm taking is one of the, the speakers in my training for crisis pregnancy coaching is a doctor from Liberty University, which is also where I got my master's degree, and Dr. Falwell, the not ju the junior that's had some issues, but the founder of the university, they gave a quote of one of his, and it says, it's one thing to be concerned about something, it is another thing to help the persons who are facing the crisis and need to make the decision. So we have to get involved. And what does that look like? I think one major thing is empowering women who are in, because they're basically being told that they have to do this or else it's going to ruin your life, right? Um, but helping them understand that they can, they don't have to go along with, like the pressures of what, like if they're boyfriend or whether it's their husband or what their parents or whatever, if they're feeling pressured to make a certain decision, but backing up and helping them process, what are you feeling? What do you want? Empowering them to make their own decision, empowering them they, if they want to do this, that there's a way they can do this and they can still have uh, maybe other things that they've hoped for. Um, there might be, there are a way we, you could still have an education or this job, like, um, and equipping them to be able to make to choose life and to have that decision. So that is our response as a church. One thing that, and why, I'm, why I've gotten involved in the way that I have um, is knowing that it's not enough to just be out there saying that life matters, but I need to be actively involved in these people's lives um, and helping them and equipping them to choose life. So why does protecting life matter? Um, and it goes on, it's not just that of the unborn, that of the, but it's, that life of the unborn, it's also the life of the scared woman, and it's also the life of the aging or the ill, because you also see we don't value um, those lives in our society either. This is a bigger issue than just uh, a life in the womb. Why does it matter, and why does sharing this particular message of what the Bible says about life and where your value comes from, why, does I, why do I think that particular me message matters over the others around um, abortion? about legislation or the science of fetal development. Uh, it matters because it's so much bigger than just the abortion itself. And it matters because it matters to God. Because all souls belong to God. In Job 12.10, I'll leave you with this one. He says, in his hand, God's hand, is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. So all life is God's and it matters because every single person um, if they don't understand the life in the womb, they don't understand their own value either. Um, and that I will pray over. So Heavenly Father, um, God, we thank you that you are Lord over all and that you created us special in your image, God, that you set us apart, that you breathed your own spirit into us, God, and distinguished us amongst creation. We thank you that we are beautiful because we are your craftsmanship. We thank you that you created us each uniquely, our bodies and souls, Lord. I thank you that we have value simply because of that, that we don't have to rely on our own doings, our own um, achievements, God, but simply knowing that it's because we're made in you. I pray that we can, um, you would help us, equip us, Lord, to speak that message into people who don't understand, God, their own worth and their own value, that we would help 
open their eyes to that, and in doing so, open their eyes to seeing the value of all life and all beings, Lord. Um, and that we would just be begin to change the hearts and minds of our nation and of our world, God. Uh, I pray that you would give us the words to speak, Lord, um, to do so, to speak truth and love with grace, God, and patience, allowing your Holy Spirit to do the work of conviction, not God, um, that we are not alienating or demonizing, God. We are simply presenting the message and letting you do the work. Um, Lord, I pray over uh, everyone participating in the walk this afternoon, God, and over the Pregnancy Life Center. I pray that you would just bless this ministry. I pray that this walk would bring in the funds and equip them, Lord, um, and also people, maybe inspire people to um, jump on and, and serve in ways, practically helping, speaking with people, women educating, Lord, empowering them, um, and that uh, you would use whatever resources, uh, monetarily or, uh, or human resources, Lord, come out of this walk and you would just multiply it, God, and use it for your will uh, in drawing people to you and to the truth, Father. We thank you. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray.